One of the things I like about this passage in this uh, in the book of Acts in this very beginning is we get this picture of the apostles. These are guys who have walked with Jesus for three and a half years. Guys who were handpicked by Jesus. That after that period of time, there's still some confusion in their minds about who the Holy Spirit is and how he works. And I find great comfort in that. <laughs> because it, it, it tells me that that's, that's a, a normal part of our growing as disciples. That we have to wrestle with, who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? So, so obviously, as we talked last week, this is the, the, the person who's writing this stuff down is Luke. Luke, the same guy who wrote the Gospel. And Luke is talking about how uh, he's, he's writing to Theophilus, who is probably a former um, Roman officer and one who uh, had become a convert. He's wanting to make sure he understands the basics of what it means uh, about who Jesus is, what it means to follow Jesus. And he's kind of given an orderly history here. And, and, and really, Acts is kind of just, in a sense, part two of Luke. And these are really just two, two books in one. And so after saying, after talking about the fact that uh, Jesus had showed himself to the disciples, speaking of the kingdom of God, for the 40 days after he had been resurrected, he gives us kind of a final account uh, from verses 4 down to 14 about here's when Jesus actually showed himself and here's what it looked like right before he ascended to heaven. And this really kind of overlaps Luke 24, the last, go- the last chapter in the Gospel of Luke about what's going on. <coughs> But what he's really wanting to do is is to show Theophilus, and and what the Holy Spirit wants us to see, is that this is what Jesus wanted. He wanted us to be prepared. He wanted us to know uh, what it means to wait for the Holy Spirit. So he's given them the Great Commission. He's told them, I want you to go out and make disciples of all nations. But before you go, I want you to wait. And so we pick it up in verse 4, and it says, And being assembled together with them, that's Jesus with them, he commanded them... Not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Now, Jesus has been preparing these guys for the ministry of the Holy Spirit for the whole three and a half years. Luke's Gospel specifically gives us a great example of that. And it's interesting that it says here that Jesus kind of, he commands them to wait. He doesn't say, look, here's a good idea. If you really want power, hang out in Jerusalem, see what happens, you know. No, he commanded them, I want you to stay here. I don't want you to leave this place. I want you to stay here. So he gives a command But he also gives a promise, or he speaks of the promise of the Father, which we know is of the Holy Spirit. So think about that for a second. Think about the nature of a command and a promise, okay? If if God makes a command on us, he says, look, this is not an option. This is something that has to happen. This is something that I'm saying I require of you, to wait for the power of the Spirit. Think about a promise. It's something that, that can't be retracted. God can't promise something and then change his mind and take it back. That's not in the nature of God. If he says something, it happens. And both those things are important because it shows us if God's saying, look, commanding those who follow him, you need the power of the Spirit. You need to wait for the Spirit to come upon you. Then we need to recognize, okay, if these guys who had three and a half years in the University of Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, how much more do we need to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit? But also, if he refers to it as the promise of the Father, something that God's not going to retract, we can expect that God's going to give us the power of his Holy Spirit. And so he gives them this command, he tells them to wait for the, the, uh, the promise of the Father, which he says, verse 4, he said, you have heard from me. Now, in that three and a half years, as I said before, Jesus taught a lot about the Holy Spirit. There's no way we're going to cover all that kind of stuff tonight. In fact, it's going to take us going through all of the book of Acts 
to reference the things that Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. But I want to just talk about a couple places. One is in in John chapter 7. So in John chapter 7, Jesus is at this great feast, okay, uh, a feast he kind of snuck to because he didn't want to get thrown into jail. And in, in the last day of the feast, it says that Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, notice, whom those believing in would receive, notice also, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now there's some things to understand about this. If we, we could do a whole teaching obviously on this section and talking about what was particular about that feast and why Jesus would have said some of these specific things at that feast. But just in a general sense, I want you to notice that Jesus still makes the emphasis on himself. Even when he talks about the work of the Spirit, he still says, look, it's those who believe in me. It's those who believe in me. And this is important because sometimes we can forget, because we, we can get sort of bogged down in this mystery that is the Trinity. And think, how can I relate to God as one if he's three? And if he raises three, how can I relate to him as one? And we can get confused in the mathematics of it. Instead of just focusing on the fact that what God's called us to do is trust Him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we see Jesus, and because we see Jesus as He is, we know what the Father's like. We know that we have a Father who in heaven who cares for us. But in the same way, we look at Jesus and we know what the Spirit is like. What is the Holy Spirit like? What, what's His personality? Who, who is He? Well, He's God the Spirit. We know the kinds of things he would do, the kinds of emphasis he would have by looking at what Jesus said and did. Also, though, it's important to notice he says here, out of your hearts will flow rivers of living water. I want you to keep that in mind because it's going to be important as we move on in just a minute. But he said that those who believe in him would receive this, uh, would receive the Holy Spirit. But it hadn't happened yet because Jesus hadn't been Glorified. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about that idea of Jesus being glorified next week. But just keep that in mind for now. Another scripture I want to point out really quick is what Jesus said in John chapter 14. John 14, Jesus says to his disciples, Most certainly I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, this verse is often, the first part of this verse is often quoted by those who want to talk about uh, how many miracles that we can do as Christians. We should be able to do all kinds of miracles, even greater miracles than what Jesus did. I personally don't think that's what this is talking about. I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, look, I did this miracle, but you could even do these great miracles. I think he's not talking about uh, it's greater in the type of things that are happening. Because if you think about it logically, who could do anything greater than what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross? N- nobody can. I mean, Jesus is Lord. He, he rules over all. He'll do over all. But it's greater in the scope, in the sense that what Jesus was limited to in the fact that he was limited to kind of uh, Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, what he was limited to there, that's not gonna ha- that limit's going to be taken away. As more and more people become followers of Jesus and the gospel goes out through all the whole world, that, that means the gospel is going to reach places that Jesus never could have reached while he was confined to his earthly body. Does that make sense? Now, but there's also this as well. Notice the emphasis on prayer. When he talks about here in John 14, how he says, 
how he says things like, um, I just lost my place, where is it? Oh, there it is, yeah, sorry. As he says things like, you know, ask in my name. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Keep that in mind, because, again, we're going to come back to that in just a minute. But he also says in John 14, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now, underline that, because there's two words in the original language that the Bible, the New Testament was written in, that is Greek, there's two words for the word another. We have one English word, another. But there's two words in the Greek. One means another of a different kind. It's heteros, like when we say heterosexual, okay? Heteros, that's another of a different kind. But there's another word that has to do with another of the same kind, okay? Another of the same kind. And this is what this word is. So when he says another helper, he means another of the same kind. The same kind as, as who? The same kind as himself. So that when we are expecting Jesus to say, look, I'm going to send you another helper. He's saying, you've enjoyed me with you three and a half years, but I'm going to send another. Another of the same kind who's going to help you in even a, a greater way. But also, he goes on to say, that he may abide with you forever. And he identifies who this is who's going to abide with them forever. He says, it's the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, notice, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Now, those little prepositions, in and with, are really important. In fact, before we go any further talking about uh, what we're seeing here in Acts, I think it's really important that we understand when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about a force. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He's a he. He's a person. We're going to see that really clearly when we get to Acts chapter 5. And it's important that we recognize that, that because he's a person, he, it's not. he's not a... A, uh, you know, like a plug that you plug into. You put a lead in there and then you get power, okay? You can't have a relationship with a plug. Okay? You can't have a relationship with a socket. He's a he. he so we have to relate to him as a person. And, and we know that he, he relates to us in these different ways. And these prepositions, this he's with you, he will be in you, tell us something. When Jesus talks about that he is with you, he's referring to this reality that the Holy Spirit was in Jesus teaching them comforting them, leading them, opening their eyes when they needed their eyes opened. They had actually, don't forget, they had actually already experienced the power of the Spirit to heal, to do miracles, to cast out demons. That's really important. Because sometimes we can make the mistake, as we'll talk about uh, in, in a couple of weeks when we get into Acts chapter 2, about the Holy Spirit coming upon uh, His disciples we make the mistake of thinking, okay, the Holy Spirit comes upon you so you can do these powerful things. You can cast out demons and you can do healings. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't do that. He still does that today. But those guys, the disciples, had already experienced that before Pentecost. So what he's telling them to wait for, what Jesus is telling them to wait for, is something that's bigger, something that's more than just you're going to have power to do things. You're going to have power to do the miraculous. You guys following me? He's talking about this, this relational reality that the Spirit's going to abide with you forever. He's not going to just be with you, coming alongside, alongside and giving you power. He's actually going to dwell in you. Now, when these guys were following Jesus for three and a half years, I mean, they were pretty close to him, right? 
You get these pictures of like John, who uh, the apostle, who's laying his head on Jesus's uh, chest. I mean, you got to be pretty secure in your masculinity to do that to another dude. You know what I'm saying? And so these guys were pretty close to do that. There was a, there was definitely a closeness between Jesus and his disciples. He loved them. They loved him, no doubt. But he was again. He was limited to being in one place at a time as God, as as the Son of Man. Yet, what the Bible talks about here, with this great promise that we have, that Jesus will say later on in John 16, is to their advantage. Is God not just alongside of us, or even coming as a man so we can relate to Him, but actually God in us, God in us? Have you ever wished that you could have been one of the twelve disciples? And actually walked with Jesus and heard him audibly. You ever wish that? You know, you could have actually seen him do the miracles or had him lay hands on you personally. I mean, I've wanted that. I thought well, how amazing it would be to be with him. <laughs> Excuse me. How amazing it's going to be when we get to see him face to face. But Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, it's to your advantage that I go away. Why? Because if I don't go away, the helper won't come. But if I send the helper, it's him who's going to abide with you forever. He's going to be in you. You, you can't get more intimate than that. You can't get closer than that. And so there's a reality, a relational reality that, that Jesus points to in John chapter 14. He says, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I will come to you. How's he going to come to them? Via the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus is talking in, back in Acts chapter 1, when he is saying, you know, telling them to, commanding them to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. This is what he's referring to, these kinds of truths that he had heard about the promise of the Father, the, the promise of the coming Holy Spirit. Then he says, listen, in John chapter, um, Acts chapter 1, verse 5, he says, For John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, baptism is about identity. So that when John the Baptist was baptizing people, John the Baptizer, if you remember, it was a baptism of repentance, right? It was a call to the nation of Israel to say, listen, God is going to set up his kingdom in preparation for God's kingdom. You need to turn away from your sin and turn back to God. So they were no longer identified as a rebellious nation. They were no longer identified as a rebellious people, but a people who are turning back to God. And the baptism was to identify that. Your old rebellious ways you're dying to, your new obedient ways you're being resurrected to, right? Now, we, we've talked about this in, in the context of water baptism on a Sunday morning. But here Jesus is talking about the baptism of the Spirit. Now, <coughs> baptism of the Spirit is also about identity. It's about recognizing that as we, as in a sense, water baptism is as well, that I've died to my old self with Christ and I'm resurrected to the new, to a new self with Christ. But it's also recognizing that just as Christ was the temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember, as Jesus said, tear down this temple in three days, I'll raise it again. Remember when he said that? Speaking of himself, his body, right? He was the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the same way, so are we, both individually and corporately. So we're identifying with him that because of what he did, his death, his resurrection, we are now qualified to be the temple of the Spirit, the place where the Spirit dwells. Now this is, this is bigger than just some kind of idea or formality. In fact, let me show you this, this analogy that I found that was really good by a, 
an old Bible scholar named uh, James Montgomery Boyce. He's an American guy. If you ever get a chance to listen to him, he's, I think he's dead now. But uh, when I used to listen to him, he has a funny old voice. But anyway, that's beside the point. He kind of, no, I can't do it. Here's what he said. He said, the clearest example that shows the meaning of baptismo, which is, of course, that word for baptism, is in a text from the Greek poet and physician, Nicander, who lived about 200 B.C. It's a recipe for making pickles, and it's helpful because it uses both words. Nicander says that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable should be first dipped, or bapto, into boiling water, and then baptized, baptismo, into the vinegar solution. Both verbs concern the immersing of vegetables in a solution. But the first is temporary. The second, the act of baptizing the vegetable, produces a permanent change. We, uh, when <coughs> used in the New Testament, this word more often refers to our union and identification with Christ than to our water baptism. This, there must be a union with him, a real change like the vegetable to the pickle. Do you understand? And so this is the idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's not just like, oh, I'm dipped in. I had this experience. It's like being completely immersed and stuck there. The, 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 the lid is closed. You're being pickled in the Holy Spirit. So the, the characteristics, listen, the characteristics of the vinegar and the spices, you are taking on because you're immersed in the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, I want you to keep that in mind because as we continue to talk about the work of the Spirit in the book of Acts... It's going to be easy to look at the specific manifestations and go, oh, I fancy that. Well, that would be great. I wish that could happen. And those are legitimate things. Things that oftentimes will still happen today. But that's not the point of the baptism of the Spirit. The point of the baptism of the Spirit is for us to be immersed in the character of God. That we are placed, baptized in, in the solution that is God Himself so that we take on His character. It's a permanent placing. Do you understand? You guys follow me with that? Okay. So Jesus was teaching these guys things and telling them these things, preparing them for the Holy Spirit's work. You get this impression as you read the Gospels that Jesus was probably more excited about the work of the Spirit in their lives than he was, you know, or than they were. They're kind of like, well, can't you just stay with us, Jesus? The Holy Spirit sounds kind of weird. We just want you to stay with us, you know. You have the Holy Spirit. We get that. But, you know, but he's like, no, 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 it's to your advantage. It's going to be even better. I mean, even better. So he's been preparing them for this work of the Spirit. But also we're going to see that Jesus is really clear. He wants to clarify the work of the Spirit, right? What's, what's the goal of the Holy Spirit's work? What's he wanting to do? So look at verse 6. It says, therefore, when they had come together, in other words, when Jesus is with these guys together, they asked him saying, well, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, okay, if the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out, we know about this somewhat from also the Old Testament. So if this is going to happen, is this when the, the kingdom's going to be restored to Israel? They were still expecting an earthly kingdom where Jesus would reign. They were still expecting that. That's an important thing to understand, okay? Look what Jesus says, verse 7. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Now, it's, 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 it's important to recognize that, that what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, no, you got it all wrong. Uh, that's not how it's going to work. You know, the, Israel's not going to, you know, be restored. The kingdom's not going to be restored to Israel. It's not going to be an earthly thing. It's just kind of metaphorical. You, you get it wrong. He didn't do any of that. He didn't deny the fact that there was going to be this earthly kingdom. He didn't deny that was a reality. He just basically said, listen, it's not for you to know the timing of these things. 
which is why it's also important for us not to argue and debate about the timing of these things. You know, when is the kingdom going to actually come in its fullness? Now, <clears throat> these guys are kind of thinking, their focus is like, okay, well, when is it all going to be done? Okay, the Holy Spirit's going to come, but when is the actual final result going to come to pass? When is it going to be that, that you reign on the earth and we reign with you? When's that going to happen? You know, we, we want to know when it's going to be finished. That's their focus. When's it going to be over? But look, look what Jesus says in verse 8. He says, listen, it's not for you to know the timing. I'm not going to tell you when, but he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall receive power. <laughs> See, their, their focus, the disciples' focus was, when will it finish? Jesus' focus was, here's what needs to be done until it finishes. This is what you need to focus on. This is what you need to think about. The first thing he brings up here is you're going to receive power. The Holy Spirit's going to give you power. Now, let's make uh, no mistake here. Jesus is talking about power. He's talking about a divine enabling to do the things he wants us to do. It's really important for us to understand. It's really important for us to recognize the truthfulness of Jesus' words. So that not just what he says here in the book of Acts, but like what he said in John 15, where he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He wasn't just using like hyperbole. He wasn't exaggerating for effect. He really meant, apart from me, you can do nothing. This is why he says, therefore, you need to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> If you think about the things that God's called us to be as followers of Christ, if you think about the things that God's calling us to, he's calling us to to love like Jesus, to love God like Jesus loved God, to love one another as Jesus loved us. That's the call. Jesus says, this is the command I give to you. Remember even the context in John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. He's calling us to a standard that there is no way we can do that naturally. There's no way... We can love each other the way he loved us, naturally, left to ourselves. There's no way we can forgive the way he called us to forgive. There's no way we can be bold the way he calls us to be bold. There's no way we can be his witnesses, which we'll see what that word means, literally martyr, apart from a power that's bigger than us. There's no way we can. The biggest mistake we make in the church is thinking that we can somehow find our own strength, or hype up some kind of strength to get done what God wants done. We can't. We can't do it. The, 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 the best place we can be in as individuals, individual followers of Jesus, and as a church, is in a place where we recognize there's no way we can do what God wants us to do unless God gives us the power to do so. Let's be honest. Have you ever had a time when it's like you're up, you know, it's your turn to to do ushering or it's your turn to, to do children's ministry or worship, you think you're up and you're thinking, oh, it's the last thing I want to do. Have you ever felt that way? Am I the only one who's ever felt that way? Come on. You feel that way you're thinking, I can't do this. Well, guess what? You can't. And oftentimes God will call us to serve in ways that we are aware. This is beyond me. And God goes, that's the point. I want it to be beyond you. 
so that you look to me and then I show my strength in your weakness. The power, my power is displayed in your weakness. And Jesus is wanting them to understand this. That's why he's saying, I want you to wait. Now, there's more to it than just the fact that they need power, that they're supposed to wait. We'll get into that in Acts chapter 2, but that is a big part of it. That These guys need power, and he wants them to realize, Ben, you, you need this. You need the Holy Spirit to empower you. But he also says in verse 8, and when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, he says, and you shall be witnesses to me. You should be witnesses to me. Some versions say my witnesses, but the idea is pretty clear. You're going to testify of me. In other words, Jesus focuses, here's what you need to do until everything's finished. Don't worry about when it's going to be finished. Here's what you need to do. You need to be filled with the Spirit. You need the power of the Spirit, for one. And for two, listen, you need to make sure I'm your message. Jesus is the message. Check this out. Again, a parallel passage or an overlapping passage, you might say, in Luke 24. Jesus, this is in a sense a Luke's kind of first version or the first time Luke tells the story in, in, the, in his gospel. It says, then Jesus said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses to what? These things. So what are we testifying of? It was necessary that, that Jesus had to come. It was necessary that he had to die. It was necessary that he had to raise from the dead. It was necessary that that had to happen in three days. And guess what? It did. And he's saying to these guys, you saw this, you know this, and this is what you testify of. This is the message. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified and him resurrected. And now we can say in a second, him uh, glorified. That Jesus is the message. This is what he's calling them to. And he says, you'll be witnesses to me, notice, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, <coughs> and to the ends of the earth. In other words, <coughs> here's what has to happen. You need the Holy Spirit's power upon you. You need to make sure that I'm your message. And you need to know that message is going to actually change the world. It's going to impact the world. When we get to Acts chapter 17, we're going to see where the, the sort of Roman officials of the time were complaining about the Christians because they said, those guys who have turned the world upside down have come to this city as well. That's a pretty good testimony, you know. How's your, how's your ministry going? Well, we've turned the world upside down. That's pretty good. But that's what happens when the Holy Spirit works. He takes, this, he takes these simple people with a pretty simple message and does radical things. He does radical things. So Jesus is wanting to clarify that's the goal of the Holy Spirit. The goal of the, of the work of God's Spirit is He's going to give His people power to take His message about Jesus out to the whole world. That's the thrust. That's the main point. Is to go is to be disciples who can go and make disciples. Now look at verse nine. <coughs> it says, after He speaks these things, right? So Jesus just said some pretty mind blowing things to the disciples. And now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, now get the scene, okay? There they are. He's telling them this stuff and they're probably going, wow, okay, power, the whole world's going to change. This is amazing. Wow. And all of a sudden, whoop, there goes, you know, he begins to float up in the sky and the clouds kind of overshadow and he's gone. 
And they're blown away. They, they see him physically ascend into heaven. And they're like, what just happened? And in verse 10 it says, And while they looked steadfastly toward the heavens, what's going on? As he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, most likely angels, obviously, who said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, you got to understand, these guys were not expecting Jesus to depart. I mean, they, when Jesus had said in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you, they were really sad. You guys remember that? They were really like, oh man, their hearts were troubled. He says, don't be troubled, I'll go and prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back for you. So when he when he's crucified, they're like, oh man, it's over. Then he's resurrected, they're like, well, maybe it's not over. He's back. And they were probably thinking, he's come back. He's back. And then he gives them the commission and says, now wait for the power to do that great commission. And by, whoop, floats into heaven. And they're thinking, what is going on? They weren't expecting him to leave. But here's the thing that's really important. From this time on, guess what? They were longing for his return. They were, that was what they were dreaming of for the time Jesus came back. In fact, they were so sure of his return, we're going to see in the book of Acts, that that's what motivated them to do things like sell all they had and leave it in common. We'll see that when we get later on to the end of chapter 2. Because they thought he's going to come back anytime and we can't wait for him to come back. They lived with that sense of urgency. They lived with the sense of all we want is to be with him who saved us. And we want to see him reign forever. So yet we want to be full of the spirit and we want to give out his message of who he is out to people. But the truth is we just want him to come back. I say this because one of the, I think, markers of a church that wants to walk in the fullness of the spirits is that they are longing for Jesus to come back. Because there's an understanding that really the kingdom comes with the king. So no matter how much the Holy Spirit uses us, and the Holy Spirit might use us in some pretty radical ways, I've learned since I've now been in England that I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to be content with too little. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't want to just think, well, that's really cool. You know, it's really exciting. I mean, I know a lot of people that are friends of mine that are pastors are <coughs> excited about what's happening in servants' church, and I got so great that you baptize all these people, or these people have gotten saved, or the church is growing, whatever. And and I'm going, yeah, that is really great, but I don't want to be content with that. I want to see God do more. I want to see more people saved, more people able to be disciples who can make disciples. I want to see more of that. You know what I want even more than that? I want Jesus to come back. Because when he comes back, it's all done. When he comes back, I'm finally going to love who I'm supposed to love, and so are you. When he comes back, righteousness is going to reign. These guys wanted this. They longed for this. That's what motivated them. My wife used to say to me all the time when the kids were really little and I was way too busy, she used to say, honey, don't forget the only thing that we take with us to heaven is people. That means our kids. Don't forget. This other stuff we're not going to take with us to heaven. Any building we get, that's not going with us to heaven. You know, any kind of reputation we have, that's all gone. All those crowns will be cast at the feet of Jesus when we get to heaven. The only thing we take to heaven with us is people. And because we know Jesus could come back anytime and we long for that, we want to take as many people with us to heaven as possible. And so they, they, they have this assurance. He's going to come back in like manner. This is one of the reasons why I firmly believe Scripture teaches that there's going to be a visible bodily return of Jesus. The same Jesus. Not another guy saying he is Jesus. 
Jesus warned us about kooks like that. But the same Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son, he's going to come back. Now, in verse 12 it says this, okay? Then they, re- then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. It's like uh, basically not very far is what that means. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. <clears throat> now, Jesus had prepared these guys for the work of the Spirit. He, he had been teaching them for three and a half years. Right before he ascends, he, uh, he emphasizes the fact they need to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And he clarifies what the goal of the Spirit is going to be so that when the Spirit comes, they know what they're supposed to be doing. That the reason he's in them and empowering them is so that they uh, is to is to so they can be witnesses of Jesus. And they realize that Jesus, as they've seen him ascend, and they, they they believe he's going to come back. And so, what do they do? They go back to Jerusalem. They go back to this common place so they can pray. They they basically go and they pray just like Jesus directed. Remember what we saw in in, in John fourteen, right? It says, "Ask, and it shall be given to you." Right. He says, ask anything in my name and I'll do it. So what they do is they they pray, just as Jesus directed, in a common meeting place. Now, does God hear us anywhere we pray? Of course he does. So you don't have to be with other people for God to hear your prayers, do you? No. But here's what we're going to see in the book of Acts. One of the things that characterized the first followers of Jesus is how often they came together to pray. How often they came together to pray. Now, you guys all know we have a Friday morning prayer meeting. We have a Sunday morning prayer meeting before the service. You know that. Obviously, we encourage you guys to be there if you can be there. We know that. Please don't think that's the only time you can come together to pray. Please, though, practice this. Please be encouraged to say, you know what? We need what God has for us. Let's practice our dependence upon God and let's pray. If you're married, pray with your spouse. If you're single, grab some people and say, hey, since we're here, why don't we just take a, few t- a little bit of time to pray? I'm not talking about some kind of legalistic, look at me, aren't I so spiritual kind of thing. I'm talking about just a, a reality, a practice of, we need God. We need Him to do what only He can do. And so while we're waiting for God to do what He wants to do, we're waiting for the power of the Spirit, let's pray for that thing that we're waiting for. Let's pray for His work. So they're in this common place, but it's interesting too. They're, they're in a common place, but they're a radically diverse group. <coughs> Luke names them. He says Peter, James, John, uh, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. He names those guys. Not to mention later on in verse 14, talks about also with the women, uh, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, speaking of Jesus' brothers. So think about this group. You got these Jesus-trained disciples, these guys who had been trained personally by Jesus for three and a half years. And these were a crazy eclectic group. You got Matthew, who's a tax collector. Nobody likes him. You got, you got Simon the Zealot, who would want to kill Matthew the tax collector before he started following Jesus. And they're on the same team. Not to mention Peter and James, uh, uh, Peter uh, and his brother Andrew, who, who seemed to be, even though they're brothers, never getting, never being together. So I don't know if you got, they got along. You got James and John, who were called the sons of thunder, super loud at calling down, you know, hell fire, hell fire uh, down on people and stuff. I mean, just really a really gnarly group of guys, pretty, pretty diverse in themselves. But mixed in with them are these mention of these women. 
And these women were known as faithful women. These were women who Jesus had picked, who, who these were, they were following him, they, they, they serviced and met his needs. Uh, they were the ones that stayed with him. Remember, all the disciples fleed when Jesus was arrested, except for John and these women. They stayed with him all the way through the time that he died. Faithful women. And then what's amazing to me is he, it mentions uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And what's amazing about that is his brothers, we know from Scripture, were total cynics. The whole time Jesus was doing his ministry, they thought, they didn't, it says clearly in John chapter 7, they didn't believe in him. They just flat out didn't believe in him. There's another passage in one of the Gospels that, that indicates that his family thought he was nuts. They thought he was crazy until what? Until the resurrection. And when they saw him, they thought, no, this is it. So I say this because, you know, coming together in a common place, we're going to come together as a diverse group. Radically different people, even though we've been discipled by the same Jesus, saved by the same Jesus. We're different people. We're going to have different styles, different ideas. Who cares? Let's pray. We're praying to the same God, aren't we? We're praying for the same thing, the power of the Spirit. But also, it says, they, when it describes how they prayed in verse 14, and we'll close with this, it says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. The word for prayer is a word there that doesn't just mean to ask. It means to ask worshipfully. <clears throat> Supplication is a word that just simply means to ask in detail. But the word for prayer there is a word that means ask worshipfully. So you might say these guys are praying in a worshipful dependence. And the reason I call it that is, is that this, this tells us something about how we're, we're needing to pray. And this is the kind of prayer, I believe, that, that, that God utilizes so that we can walk in the fullness of the Spirit. It's the kind of prayer that recognizes, God, you do what you want to do. We don't control you, you control us. It's, it's, it's not us that somehow manufactures your spirit or uh, calls down your spirit or works up your spirits. You do what you want to do. The Spirit works as He wills, Paul tells us in Corinthians. And so we're dependent upon you doing what you want to do. We can't control you. You have to choose what you want to do. That's the dependence part. But the worshipful part is, is praying, knowing, as Jesus said in John 14, He's going to do what He says He's going to do. God says to us, the Bible says to us in 1 John 5, listen, it says, if you ask anything according to His will, He hears you. And if He hears you, you know you have the things that you asked. Is it God's will that you walk in the fullness of the Spirit? Of course. He's, he, if he commands, be filled with the Spirit, or literally be being filled with the Spirit, guess what? That's his will. So what, how can we ask? We ask in faith. We say, God, this is what you want for us. So we, have, we can't control it. We can't tell you when it's going to happen or exactly what it's even going to look like. But we know we need to trust you for that power. Do what you've called us to do and to be who you called us to be. So we're going to pray to you with this expectant, worshipful dependence that you're going to do what you said you're going to do. I wonder if our powerlessness isn't directly connected to our prayerlessness. We're not asking. We're not saying, God, do what only you can do. Check this out. Sorry, it's going a bit long. Almost done. Jesus says, so I say to you, ask, seek, knock. For everyone who asks, receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened and if a son asks for bread from any father among you will he give him a stone or if he asks for a fish will he give him a serpent instead of a fish or if he asks for an egg will he offer him a scorpion 
If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Let's be honest. Here's the things that keep us from asking this way. We look at our circumstances of life and we go, you know, okay, God says He's good, but I don't know, I've asked for, I keep asking for a bread and I keep feeling like I'm getting stones. That's one thing. It's just unbelief. We don't believe God is as good as He says He is. Another thing is, is fear. I know this is, this was, uh, been, uh, my experience with a lot of young people that I've dealt with. Uh, they were afraid because of the church experience that if they were asking God to give them more power, asking the Holy Spirit to do, <coughs> excuse me, what only He could do, something weird might happen. I don't want to flop on the ground like a fish. I don't want to speak in a language I don't know. Oh no, what's going to happen? But you know, guys, listen, God's not going to manifest himself to you in a way or, or work through you in a way that is going to freak you out. He knows who you are. He knows how he needs to assure you of his presence. He knows how he needs to assure you of your power. And he's not going to do something that you don't need to have happen. You don't have to be afraid of what the Holy Spirit is going to do. I'm not telling you that, that you get to tell God what you'll take and not take. <laughs> He, he's still sovereign. He does what he wants to do. But you don't have to be afraid of what God's going to do. Another thing is, God's not going to do anything that we don't see in Scripture. If it's not in Scripture, it's probably not God. It's another spirit. But if we see the things in Scripture that God did when he, when he empowered people by his spirit, we can expect the same things. 